0: This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. I've heard it said that failures and disappointments are really only building blocks on the road to success. Well, that's not too much comfort when things go wrong and the future doesn't appear very promising. In today's world, it seems we have a limited amount of time allocated to waiting for the gold ring before we get impatient, and in many cases, just plain quit out of frustration. But how successful would we be? How long would we keep the faith if we were bedridden and, to all intents and purposes, paralyzed and helpless, depending almost entirely on others for, say, more than twenty years? But I'm getting ahead of my story, and best start at the beginning. And to do that, we have to look back in time to the mid-1700s in Souville, France, when a healthy baby girl was born to Jean and Marie-Louise Billard. Healthy was important because while the new baby was their seventh child, they had lost three young children, and the ones surviving were not too robust. At any rate, the baby was called Julie. She was the joy of the family happy and healthy. Three years later, a baby brother was born, but unfortunately he had multiple handicaps, as did one of little Julie's sisters, who was several years older and almost blind. Schooling was more attainable for Julie because her uncle ran the little town school, where she was an eager and excellent student. While she excelled in her classes, there was no question that religion was her favorite subject, and she quickly passed all the older children in her knowledge and understanding of the catechism, and that led her, even at such a young age, to have a great love and devotion to God. Her mother would frequently see her sitting quietly in the garden by herself, and when questioned what she was doing, she would happily respond that she was talking to God. Not all the children were fortunate enough to go to school. Many could not simply afford the luxury in those days, and it was not uncommon to see eight- or nine-year-old Julie holding her own classes in the yard, teaching the less fortunate children about Jesus as well as how to pray, and, of course, reading and writing. As an interesting sidelight, at that time, there was one little boy, really an urchin and almost an outcast, for whom little Julie felt a special empathy and took the time to teach him not only how to read and write, but how to behave. Many years later, that same little boy would write Julie that, because of her, he had grown to become a prosperous and successful businessman. Well, in those days, children would make their first communion when they were in their early teens, but the new priest in town was so impressed with Julie that at nine years old, he said she was ready, and to avoid the impression of special treatment, he would give her communion in private. But by eleven, she was obviously so advanced that she began to receive the Eucharist with everyone else. And now she was spending an hour a day in church praying as well as giving a great deal of thought about one day becoming a nun. Her young devotions were what might be called examples of what was to be. She would go out of her way to help with those who were ill, and it was not uncommon for her, even at so young an age, to have her parents' permission to spend the night with someone who was seriously ill and who needed round-the-clock attention. Well, naturally, this was noticed by the townspeople of Suvely, who often referred to Julie as the Saint of Suvely. She received the Sacrament of Confirmation at the age of thirteen, and afterwards told the parish priest that she would like to give herself completely to God, asking His permission for her to make a vow of chastity. Now, in those days, it was not that uncommon for a girl in her early teens to marry. And at the age of fourteen, with her priest's permission, Julie made her gift to God with the vow of chastity. But life was not to be simple for Julie. Her older brother died shortly after her confirmation, followed by the death of one of her sisters. Julie's father was a merchant dealing with soft goods such as cloths, linens, and lace, and the sort. He had just returned from a buying trip in which he bought all kinds of fine merchandise that would enhance his business. It was a big gamble, but it would allow him to better support his family. Unfortunately, While they slept that first night back, thieves broke into the house and stole much of his new merchandise, creating immediate financial disaster. Just a few items of the fabrics were left. While praying in church, Julie had an inspiration when she heard the bells signaling the Angelus. In her mind, she imagined seeing the men in the fields stopping to pray. Her idea was that she, too, could work in the fields, and that would help the family's income. Oh, her parents strongly objected to their teenage daughter working side by side with the rough and tumble farmhands who rarely entered a church and knew little about God. Seeing them pray was definitely imaginary to, to little Julie." Her parents' concern didn't deter her. Her quick response was, well, I'll teach them about God. And so she started working side by side with the men in the fields. She was a prime target for their jokes and thoughts, this young and innocent girl. When they would break for lunch, Julie would use the time reading about the saints. After a while, because of her demeanor and attitude, the jokes stopped and and the men's The men asked her first to read to them from the books, and then she taught them many of the stories from the Bible, and even had them sing hymns during their breaks and as they worked. Julie found great joy in introducing them to the wonders of God, and for the income in the fields, well, that helped her family in their time of financial difficulty being ever resourceful the teenage girl had another idea the bolts of fabric that had not been stolen well she would take them to the town of bouvet which was about 20 miles away and try to sell them to the fabric shops there she strapped the goods to a horse and rode to bouvet the first shop bought everything Well, now she was in business to help the family. And for the next six years, she alternated selling boats her father bought and working in the fields to continue helping the family, but never at the expense of missing mass. One day, Julie noticed her vision was not clear, but hoped it was only temporary. But it got worse. After an examination by her doctor, he said she was going blind, just like her sister. Well, her mother took her to a Cistercian monastery in montreal where they had a replica of Veronica's veil in the shrine. They prayed and received a double miracle. both Julie and her sister's sight were restored, but her faith was to be tested again with even a more dire consequence. This was a time of unrest. There were those who found delight in frightening or hurting others. France was in a turmoil. And one evening she and her father were sitting together in their home when a rock was thrown through the window, followed by a shot, apparently aimed at her father. Well, the bullet missed him, but the double attack had a traumatic effect on Julie.' She developed a type of painful neuralgia that weakened her muscles, and she was forced to walk with crutches to her daily Mass and and when she was teaching the children their catechism and when she was going to tend the sick and those in need in her community. Her reputation for holiness and goodness was spreading. Even the local bishop referred to her as a saint and was once quoted as saying, She seems to be inspired by God. I will be surprised if we do not hear more about her. Well, her handicap continued for a number of years, but she never lost faith. And then shortly an epidemic of sorts broke out and and Julie received primitive and poor medical treatment, and, and became almost completely paralyzed. And if that were not enough, her condition ultimately affected her jaws, and she was frequently unable to speak. Remember what I asked at the beginning? How long would we keep the faith if we were bedridden, paralyzed, and helpless? We think we have troubles? Julie's condition lasted twenty-plus years. Oh, God was not ignoring her. He was preparing her. Those, too, were dark days in France, the days of the French Revolution. Everywhere people were in despair. Everywhere, that is, except for Julie. The church was under attack. The faith persecuted. The priests killed or imprisoned. Where was there any hope? Well, the hope was to be found with Julie, who, regardless of her physical problems, was a source of comfort. She arranged for priests to be hidden and and constantly reassured the people to have faith in God. For God is good, she would say. That became her battle cry over and over again, God is good. The revolutionaries knew of her. They knew what she was doing, and she was their enemy. A friend managed to take her to a chateau away from Souvelis, but her location was discovered, and the revolutionaries burned the chateau in the hopes of burning her alive. But Julie was taken away, hidden in a hay cart, before the fire was started. She was still in her teens, but she was considered a major threat, and was moved a number of times over the ensuing years to protect her. But her faith and presence was an inspiration to all. Oh, she still had her paralysis, and often she still could not speak, but through it all, she managed to make lace for her expenses, and then on a good Friday, something strange took place. She had a vision. She saw the crucified Christ with a circle of nuns standing beneath the cross, wearing habits that were different from those with which she was familiar. In addition, she would later recognize individuals whom she remembered seeing in her dream or visions. But most oppressive of all, she heard a voice in the vision, and its words became etched in her mind. The voice said, Behold the daughters whom I give to you in the institute that will be marked by my cross. And from that vision, Julie would have a glimpse of the trials yet to come and the problems she would have to face in the days and the years ahead. Well, she didn't have long to wait. One of her dear friends had lost both her husband and father to the revolution and felt Julie's goodness would be of help to her in her time of need, and so she invited Julie to come and live with her in the town of Amiens. Although Julie wanted to be of help, she felt her physical condition was really too tenuous to accept, but after much soul-searching, she thought, if this is what God wanted her to do, As part of his master plan for her, she could not refuse, and she made the trip to Amiens in the fall of 1794. As she settled into her quarters as part of the Hotel Blaine, Julie met Françoise de Bourdon, who would also become a part of God's plan as well as Julie's friend for life which in itself is interesting, since Françoise at first felt uncomfortable being with Julie because of her speech, which was often well-nigh well unintelligible. But as the time passed, not only Françoise, but several of her friends were attracted to Julie's company because of her radiant spirituality." In fact, so magnetic was Julie's personality that several of the women moved into the hotel to be nearer to her and joined together in works of charity. They even referred to Julie as mother. Several years later, due to the politics of the time, the religious in France faced new religious persecution and the priests were again subjected to prison. Many were forced into hiding, and of course, with the faithful priests unable to provide the leadership that was so desperately needed, it didn't take long for the children to suffer and the laity to become lax. Anyone attempting to practice their faith were also in danger. So one of the ladies of the group living in the same hotel as Julie and a part of her group suggested they leave and take up residence in a small estate she owned outside the city and away from the soldiers. Under cover of darkness, the small group, accompanied by a faithful priest who was also hunted, slipped out of the hotel and made their way to the estate which was just a few miles away. The priest spent long hours working with Julie to improve her speech, and each day it seemed to improve. Their exile lasted almost two years, and the year was 1799, and Julie was now almost 50 years old, but she was now able to speak their long wait to return to the daily practice of their faith was now ending. They could once again openly worship God, and the priests and religious could proclaim his good news after so many long years of religious persecutions. Trouble was, the churches and schools had been closed. The priests and religious had to work underground, so to speak. Most of the population had not experienced the beauty of the Mass or the glory of the Word of God, and and people just plain forgot. It was simpler that way, and infinitely easier than having to follow the rules of God. So in 1803, after four years in their exiled village, Father Thomas, Julie, and Francoise decided it was time to return to Amiens, where they determined there was much to do there to restore the faith. And in Amiens, the local priest there was a father, Varenne, who was familiar with Julie, having seen how effective she had been over the past few years. And, and he suggested to her that she began a community of sisters with the objective of educating the children. He recognized her holiness as well as her abilities. Julie, on the other hand, felt overwhelmed. The other women who had been with them had returned to their homes. Now it was just she and Francoise. Two women. Just two women. Plus, she had her health problems, and the good priest's idea seemed dashed with the basic question how could just the two women do all that was needed to be done? Well, it was simple. She couldn't, but she did gather as many children as she could to teach them religion, and that was a start, small but a start. Father Varine knew what Julie could do. He had faith in her and Francoise and had them pray for other women to join them. Julie and Francoise moved into an abandoned, vacant orphanage, and Father Vereen sent them eight orphans for them to house, feed, teach, and take care of. A big job for just two women. But then they had a visitor, a lady named Catherine, who told them that she had worked with the ladies of the Sacred Heart, who helped educate the children of the well-to-do, but that her own deep wish was to help the children from poverty who didn't have the advantages of wealth, and she would like to work with Julie and Francoise. And so, on February the 2nd, in 1804, in the chapel of the orphanage, Father Vereen celebrated a very special Mass, in which the three women, Julie, Francoise, and Catherine, consecrated themselves as religious sisters with their primary objective to devote their lives and energy to providing the needed education of orphans, as well as preparing others to be able to follow their charism. They would take for their name the Sisters of Notre Dame. Of course, Notre Dame, or as we say in the United States, Notre Dame, is a name well known, but so many of us just accept that as the name, forgetting that it is French for our lady. And it would be our lady, or perhaps better phrased, their lady, who would be their patroness. Within a short time, three more women joined their order, and now Mother Julie expanded her role in teaching other women about the faith and their responsibilities. And of course, more women then joined as sisters. This was a special time in church history. People were now free to celebrate the faith, and special ceremonies were held in the church. Julie was often carried in on a chair since she was still unable to walk, and she would instruct women in matters of faith and taught them their catechism. Father Varine had introduced a young priest named Father Anfante, who would stay with the sisters and would be Julie's spiritual advisor, even though he was less than half her age. Toward the end of a mission, in honor of the Sacred Heart, Father Anfanti asked Julie to join with him in a novena to the Sacred Heart for a special intention to help someone he knew with a problem. Well, naturally, she agreed. And after Mass, a few days later, as Julie was sitting in the garden— Father Anfanti walked up to her and spoke with powerful words, saying, Mother, if you have any faith, take one step in honor of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And for the first time in 22 years, Mother Julie stood and took that first step and walked. Word spread quickly with the general perception that God had definite plans for Sister Julie. Her priest friends left for other assignments, and a father de Sambusi was named her confessor and advisor. This would ultimately not bode well for Sister Julie. As superior of the new order, perhaps it's best to refer to her now as Mother Julie. Oh, She was busy with a myriad of details, large and small, but her favorite activity was teaching about the love of God, particularly to children, and helping prepare women to live fruitful and productive Christian lives. Well, the sisters' lives were not easy, and their earthly rewards were barely visible. Their food generally consisted of just bread and water in the mornings, soup at noon, and perhaps a few vegetables for dinner. And at night, well, they would sleep on straw mats. But their sacrifices were their gifts to God for the joy of spreading devotion to Him, and He showed His gratitude. On the feast of the presentation of Jesus in the temple, The date was the 2nd of February, 1806. Mother was telling her sisters the story of the presentation. She paused a moment, looked at the crucifix, and as she did, she rose in the air, her feet not touching the floor, as she appeared in ecstasy with a light shining from her face. Apparently there was a sound that jarred her back to reality, and she quickly descended back to the floor and immediately left the room. She would later confide to her long-time friend, Francoise, God, let me know that we will carry the light of the gospel to all nations. We are not to be limited to one diocese or one country. She was right, because shortly thereafter, the bishop of Ghent in Flanders invited her to open a house in his diocese. But she would need someone who spoke Flemish, and none of her sisters did. Well, quite naturally, such a woman volunteered and returned with her to the mother house in Amiens for training. They now had 18 sisters and moved into a bigger house where they could train more children. They had to get word around, so mother sent the children or sisters out to walk in the streets ringing bells, announcing that the Sisters of Notre Dame had opened a free school for little girls, and 60 girls showed up. Then the second convent opened up in Ghent with several sisters, including the Flemish woman. Word of their efforts and successes was spreading. The bishop of Namur was requesting that Mother, that Mother, open a house in his diocese. It appears that Mother Julie's confessor, Father De Sambusi, really saw himself not just as her confessor, but the creator of this new order, and that was the order that was achieving so much favorable attention. Well, he felt that he was better educated and that he had more to offer, and while Mother and Francoise were in Nemours, he successfully maneuvered in taking over the convent at Amiens, and even went so far as to appoint a young woman of just twenty-three years as the new superior. He even turned the local bishop against Mother Julie, who made it clear that she was not to return. Former friends and supporters were wrongly informed and, and turned against Mother Julie based on these false allegations. Ever faithful to her vows, she steadfastly held her ground, sorrowful at the desertion of many of her old friends and supporters who had been supplied with these false information pieces, but she nonetheless forgave them as Jesus had forgiven those who crucified him. The local bishop at Amiens wanted the order run in one direction and gave her permission to establish another order in Namur. All the sisters but two elected to go with Mother Julie to Namur. There were to be more trials and tribulations, but she would constantly remind her sisters that we exist for the poor, absolutely only for the poor. She would prevail despite her misinformed opposition. In twelve years, Mother Julie made a hundred and twenty trips, often in foot and often with difficulty, such as the time she had to walk thirty-seven miles to Namur carrying her bag. Oh yes, she was eventually asked to return to Amiens, but had a vision of Jesus carrying his cross away from that convent, and she said, we must close the convent at Amiens and concentrate on a wider area. Well, she was faced with more hurdles. Napoleon's wars made travel difficult, but she would write countless letters of advice and help to her sisters throughout the area. Many of the letters which are surviving to this day. Under her guidance, the Sisters of Namur flourished and spread. Two other separate congregations were established from the Sisters of Notre Dame, founded by Mother Julie. Today, Sisters of Notre Dame from all three congregations continue her work and live according to her spirit. She was taken ill in January of 1816, and after three months of pain and suffering, born in silence, she died with the Magnificat on her lips. And her cause for canonization started in 1881, and after the necessary confirmed miracles, she was canonized as saint in 1969 by Pope Paul the Sixth. Today, the Sisters of Notre Dame are recognized as outstanding educators. And over the years, thousands of sisters have taught children and adults on five continents. Although many sisters continue to staff schools, others have chosen to work with the homeless, AIDS patients, the elderly poor, and countless others in need of help. All of this activity has one aim to proclaim in our time, as St. Julie did in hers, that God is good. And St. Julie Billiard shows beautifully what one person can do in spite of difficulties. And she was right. God is good. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.